It has come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. You've reached the Talk Tank, the official LSE Entrepreneurs podcast, where we delve into the minds of those who think, live, and breathe outside the box. My name is Alki, and I will be your host for today. Welcome to Bits and Bytes, our series dedicated to innovation and technology at the heart of society's change. By delving into the technology that drives transformation, we will meet the humans who revolutionize our lives bit by bit. Today's guest is Lars Rasmussen, serial entrepreneur and father of a product that many of us can't imagine living without, Google Maps. Lars created the mapping technology with his brother and sold it to Google, where he stayed as lead engineer of the Google Maps team for six years. He then went on to join Facebook as its director of engineering. Today, he's working on the exciting music startup, Weave Music, which seamlessly adapts a song's tempo to the user's activity level without distorting the music. This technology creates a new realm of possibilities for the music industry as a whole, which I can't wait to talk about. Welcome, Lars. We are so excited to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So we usually start all of our episodes by asking our guests to introduce themselves in their own words. But before we get to that, I was actually listening to a podcast last week um, called How I Built This. And it was on a founder, Melanie Perkins, who came up with Canva. Oh, yes. And, and she was talking about how you were an important advisor to her firm. And she gave you a little introduction, which I thought would be perfect to set the scene for today. So Melanie said, meeting Lars blew my mind because I had no idea that people who made big, world-changing companies were just regular, nice, hardworking, normal people. And meeting Lars completely changed my perception of what is possible. So this is Melanie's introduction of you, but now let's hear it in your own words. Who is Lars? <laughs> well, you can't tell that. That is a very kind word. And of course, now Melanie, now what, not, not even 10 years later now, she has built Something much, you know, it's like a, 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 an amazing company, tens of millions of users uh, in the design space, which I've always been in love with. And in fact, Google Maps, I think a lot of its success had to do with the fact that my brother and I had worked in the design industry as programmers when we were students back in um, in Denmark. This is before the Mac, before desktop computers were powerful enough to this. And we wrote design software for these high-end printing presses. And, uh, and that taught us how to make things look good. Um, I guess I guess by way of introduction, I was born and raised in Denmark. I started my studies there. I finished them in California at UC Berkeley. have a PhD from there. I joined the crazy startup scene um, right in the middle of the dumb.com boom back in the late 90s. Saw that enormous bubble grow and grow and grow and explode. And in fact, the Google Maps story started with us getting laid off from a startup that died in that big stock market crash, tech stock market crash back in 2001, I think. And um, we built this little thing, uh, it's tons of fun. We didn't have any money, no one was investing at the time, but we ended up selling it to Google. Worked there for seven years, um, tons of fun. I, I can't begin to tell you how amazing it was to join Google. Back then, it was already a huge company, 2,000 people, I think, when we joined. Um, and then I, I switched. I worked for Facebook for a couple of years, worked on the search team there, worked on uh, what's now called 
workplace, an enterprise version of Facebook that's, that's doing quite well. And then I left and, and, and did this music startup with my, um, with my wife, which is lots of fun. Thank you, first of all, for your intro. I think you've given our listeners a lot to look forward to. Um, but we're going to start at the beginning and specifically Google Maps. Um, so this is obviously something that a lot of people are using in their everyday life. It's really changed the world. So could you tell us a bit about the founding story? Um, how, how did it begin? Yeah, definitely. Well, so again, it started with my brother and I both getting laid off from the same company, a little startup that was started uh, by a, a UC Berkeley professor and didn't survive the dot-com bust back then. And we got laid off actually three months apart. Uh, Jens first. And so by the time I predictably got laid off in the next wave, he was like, okay, Lars, this is what we're going to work on. Because he, <laughs> he, he's, he's the ideas man in our family. Like he has a startup idea every week, probably every day, but he only tells me about the good ones. And, um, and he was looking at the, the landscape, right? The, the, there was this, this dramatic crash in tech stock back then. And a lot of investors was, lost a lot of money. So it was hard to raise money back then. And he thought that these ideas that he had in the mapping space was something that a very small team could build and make an enormous impact, given how the, the digital mapping landscape was quite stagnant, like like MapQuest, you might remember in the US, and there was a company called Multimaps, I think, in the UK. MapQuest in the US kind of pioneered the idea of online maps. And then sold to AOL, everyone copied it, everyone had the same kind of maps, and nothing had really happened for five years, you know, which is a lifetime in, in tech. And my brother was like, we knew so much better. And it, it, a lot of the conversations I have with my brother about his ideas they always start with him saying, look, online maps suck. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? I use it like once a week. I love it. It helps me, you know, I print out directions and it gets me more or less where I want to go. It's, it's great. And he's like, no, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. And then he explains, because he that's how he thinks. He, he thinks by default that everything can be done better. And very often he figures out how. And so he had this idea that instead of a website that had a bunch of text and then a small map, that's just an image, um, you, you should make a big map that moves really quickly. Like in, like in the old days, like you have to like click a button and wait 30 seconds for a new image to be loaded. But he wanted it to like move smoothly and zoom in and out and, and take up the whole screen or as much as the screen as possible and then put the information on top of the map instead of in text next to the map. So the map was like a, a platform for any data where geography was important. Like we're not just talking about where the streets are and so on, but like where are the restaurants and what's their, their menu and when are they open and like where's the cinema and that's how that's how the whole thing started and the two of us just just started just the two of us and we worked on it for six months tried to raise money it was totally impossible like no one was investing there was no such thing as an angel at this time and even the big vcs were like super conservative and then we got two more friends involved two australians Noel gordon Stephen ma and jens my brother and i we kind of work, we like to joke that we were all over the map. Did you get it? Because I was in <laughs> California, he was in Denmark, and then Noel and Stephen were in Australia. Um, and so we built this thing, the four of us now, we actually gathered in Australia for a few months. That was the most productive time. And then we went back to Silicon Valley to raise money. And we got this, uh, this one company interested, like one of the big marquee VC funds. And they offered us, I mean, they suggested, I should say, 
that they would buy 40% of a company for $2 million, which you know, by today's standards would be a, a horrifically bad deal for the entrepreneurs. But back then, we were, it was, you know, our dreams were coming true. This was a company that had like backed Apple and Google and all kinds of amazing companies. Um, unfortunately, you know, you go through this process that a VC has, right? And it's like a funnel that they first express some interest and you meet more partners and they think more about it. And then at the very end of the funnel, um, uh, Yahoo, which was still a very really big player back then, Yahoo launched some changes to their map site that had just like a whiff of a hint of what we were talking about. And because things were so skittish back then, the investor backed off and said, look, your window's going to close. We're not going to invest. We're sorry. Um, and then a very interesting thing happened is that one of the one of the guys that was going to help us, it's like the, the, the investor had introduced us to this guy who was going to be our business person because we're all geeks, we're all techies. And um, and he, he was like, look, I know you're bummed. Um, but the interesting thing is that the same reason that the investor is bailing on you is going to make Google want to buy you because they don't have anything in mapping and Google and Yahoo were kind of big rivals back then. And here's a chance they can, they can absorb your company and leapfrog everyone else in mapping with your technology. And, you know, Google back then, this was like right maybe six months before their IPO and they were, you know, everyone's in tech was like, this is the, this is the thing, the hottest company around. And, uh, and, and so, and, and very conveniently, this, 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 this guy, uh, his name is Ram Sharam. Um, he conveniently sat on Google's board uh, and he had actually like helped Larry and Sergey out in the early, early times when they were raising their first round. And, uh, and so he got us right in touch with Larry Page. We pitched it to him and, um, and Larry was like, uh, this is interesting. You know, I like the way you're thinking about maps. But he also, there was this, this interesting twist that it wasn't actually a website we had built. So you have to think back all the way to now 2002. So we're five years before the iPhone. And we're, we're at a time when the web was really starting to happen. Um, you know, like Google, of course, Google Search, Google News, Gmail hadn't even launched yet. Um, eBay companies like that had made it really big on the web. Everything was moving to the web. Um, and Larry was like, I like the way you think about maps, but we're really a web company. Are you sure that you can't build something in a web browser? And it was kind of interesting because we, we kind of pitched for a year and a half, the idea that you really couldn't build better maps in a web browser. And in fact, we argue that the reason everyone had very similar websites, all mimicking MapQuest, is that that was really the best you could do in a browser. Um, but then Larry said that thing, and we were what I like to call a heightened state of motivation, as in Google was our absolute last way to make something out of this. And we were completely broke. Like we were like looking at the, you know, weeks away from not being able to pay our rent kind of thing. It was, it was quite scary. And so we, we worked day and night for three weeks and realized that there was this new, new technology in web browsers. Um, what later became known as Ajax, you know, JavaScript driven dynamic web pages that uh, no one had really built at the time. But in Internet Explorer only, we could actually go and rebuild the mapping client we had done in native code in the browser and make it almost as slick and fast without requiring anyone to install code. And so in three weeks, we like rebuilt the whole thing that we'd spent a year and a half building, put in a browser, and we went back to Google and, and we sort of nonchalantly said, so, so do you mean something like this, maybe? 
um, and uh, trying to hide the fact that we're just like proven our own theory from a year and a half wrong and and actually built what became Google Maps. And we actually, we, we presented it completely like it looked like we thought <laughs> this is how Google Maps should look like, right? So so like Google had their design principle and maybe there was even a Google Map logo that we hacked up and we used little um, the map markers were lava lamps because Larry and Sergey likes lava lamps. I don't know if you know this, but like the early offices had lava lamps everywhere. And when when an employee did something good, they would get a lava lamp as a reward. And uh, and so we put lava lamps on the map to impress them. And uh, and I think it did impress them. I don't know about the lava lamps, but the fact that we that we built this website in in just a few weeks after telling them it couldn't be done. And then Google bought us, and they, uh, you know, a couple of engineers joined our team. So we're now in two thousand, early two thousand and five. Yeah, so like fifteen years ago, we launched Google Maps, and it was uh, the the first day was amazing because um, we actually almost like destroyed Google Search that day by the amount of traffic that 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 we created by launching this thing, because you know this was back when Google really only had search. And, you know, you type in a search and there'd be a thousand computers somewhere computing the results of your search. And it would send us one web page of blue link backs. And it just mm-hmm. took up a lot more bandwidth. And, uh, and the, you know, we're talking small million users, which was a, a small number compared to how many people used Google search at the time. But because of all those images, it really ate up all the bandwidth that Google had. And very famously, ORS who was still, I think, in charge of all the data center. He spent like the day with his hand hovering over the red button that was going to kill Google Maps before it killed Google Search. And uh, we were just like cheering. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it was, it was an incredible day. And actually, when I, when I look back, there's this funny thing. When we were trying to raise money way, way back before Google and everyone turned us down, one of the most common reasoning that the investor had, not wrong or anything, but the investor was like, look, look, when I look at my own life, I use online maps at most once a week. And it's just not that important a thing to me. You know, like it's like there's this thing, it's not the best. I can see how you're doing better, but I only use it once a week. You know, for something to be really interesting in a mass market, you want something that people use a lot more. Like Google at the time, people use it 10 times a day, right? And we were like, well, right, you only use it once a week because it's not very good, right? And actually, in fact, the thing we'd hear over and over, I use it once a week because I almost I mostly go to places I know. I go to work. I know how to get to work. I go to my kids' school. I know how to go to school. I go to the pub. It's the same pub. I you know I know how to get there. And only once a week do I go to a place that I don't know how to get to. So I go and use MapQuest, and it's fine. And uh, and we argued. Well, look, it's because those maps are so hard to use. Once our maps come out, and even better when they come out on mobile phones and they're in your pocket and fast and it's slick and they're pretty, and you will use maps more often and you will be more comfortable going to new places. Whereas before it was such a hassle to get to a new place that people go to the same place over and over and over. And of course, I don't know about you guys, but like I use Google Maps many times a day. I also have no sense of direction, uh, which another reason I think Google Maps is so successful is that I have zero sense of direction. And so my my need for a map is like really basic. Like I get lost, it's dangerous. <laughs> if if the map doesn't help me. It's kind of the joke, the joke that never keeps giving. Uh that that if if we're in a group of friends, uh they will just kind of like fall back and let me lead the pack. And then we always get lost and they think it's super funny. 
Um, but if, yeah, if I don't have a map, I will get lost no matter how familiar I am. That's so interesting. I think a lot of people wouldn't have expected that from the founder of Google Map. But I think what you said about the quality of the app is really important because if you think about Google Maps, it's not like Facebook, which has these intense like network effects where you know you almost have to be on it to talk to your friends. Google Maps is different. Like technically, you could use another mapping software, but people just use it because it's so so good. Um, but I'm curious about one thing. Um, mm-hmm. In the early days of creating Google Maps, I imagine it must be quite challenging to come up with like all the different like countries you have to put on there. I mean, I'm sure it helps that you had an international team, but did it actually happen that you forgot something? <laughs> well, look, we started just with uh, the US. Um, and this was mostly a function of the fact that early on, we licensed the, the data like the, the 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 country borders and where the streets are and the parks are and what they're called and the terms all that stuff we licensed from companies that gathered up that data for car navigation systems primarily, and and in the beginning we just only had the U.S. and um, I think to this funny story when we first launched it we we very deliberately put North America in the middle of a very big blue ocean to kind of indicate that we do know there's more out there. We just haven't quite <laughs> mapped it yet, right? <laughs> so, so you could zoom out and you could like move over where Europe's or Africa is supposed to be. It was just an ocean. And uh, and in that first week, we, Google got like thousands of emails about what people thought about Google Maps. And there was a bunch of customer support people reading through these things. And one, one of them forwarded this email in all caps that said, you forgot Poland. <laughs> no way. <laughs> we thought it was super funny. I think we we have that saved somewhere. But uh, but so a little, you know, little by little, we added countries. Like we started actually first when we added with Poland. Sunlight. We started with Poland. Yeah, we sent that guy back. Well, now we you got you got Poland. But the uh, the uh, we we first added satellite images that were worldwide, not at high resolution everywhere, but we had some images of everywhere. And so in order to be able to navigate that, then we. We found somewhere all the borders of the country, and um, and uh, and all the names of that, and and then little by little we filled in the maps. You know, we went and licensed more mapping data from different places, and then uh, there's this fantastic story: a, a team of Google engineers in um, in Bangalore, India, where there wasn't a a very good database of maps data available. Uh, although it's a country that's just culturally is obsessed with maps, like you could buy a map on every street corner from a street vendor. People buy maps and love maps, but there wasn't a digital database yet. And so these guys built um, like a Wikipedia-like product for users to come and, and build a mapping data, database of India. And uh, and that that product, which most people in the so-called developed world have never encountered this product, but it actually had created maps for 160 countries or so in the world is users inputting mapping data by looking at satellite images and like tracing tracing streets and writing their names and all this stuff. It's an incredible, incredible piece of work. Um, so yeah, so the, the countries was fun. We, we got to learn uh, a little bit about uh, borders being controversial. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, <laughs> I can imagine. I'll, uh, if you have time, I'll tell you how we... Uh, the first time we ran into this. And it's not that we didn't know. That's the funny thing. Because, you know, you're in a mapping space. And one of the stories that you inevitably encounter is how when Microsoft launched Windows 95, 
they they had for the first time kind of a graphical time zone picker that would just like have an outline of the world and then colored bands representing the the time zone, right? You click one in order to pick a time zone. Super slick piece of UI compared to what existed before 95, right? The, the problem is that time zones kind of follow country borders part of the way. And Microsoft had chosen to make the time zone around, um, what is that region? There was a disputed region in the China, Pakistan, India sort of Kashmir? triangle. Kashmir? No. Kashmir, thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. They had chosen, just to mark, just to draw a time zone, they had chosen a version of that border that was not along the lines of what the Indian government believed that border should be. And although it, had, it was not about countries at all, it was about time zones, right? That was enough that it violated the law in India. And Microsoft employees got, like, carted off to prison. And <laughs> it was a very uh, scary oh, thing. God. And so and you you hear that, right? So And so you're alert when you're making maps. You're like, okay, you can get arrested for drawing borders the wrong way. And so, and so we were very careful. We, when we first just drew the borders of all the countries in the world, we downloaded those borders from a United Nations sanctioned database. And we only use data from that database so that no, we, we could always just go, you know, take it, pick, take it up with the United Nations. And, and there was actually a specific concept of a disputed border that was, and we would draw them with a dotted line and we would draw all the different versions of that border with dotted lines. And then no one complained until <laughs> we had this, this one thing that you could search for a country, like you search for Denmark, which is where I'm from. And then we would like zoom the map to Denmark, except we had no maps. We just had a bunch of pretty satellite images. And then we'd, we'd echo back the formal name of the country and say the Kingdom of Denmark. That's the formal name according to the United Nations, right? And if you did this to Taiwan, uh, we would echo back what the United Nations at the time called Taiwan, which was something like Taiwan... Uh, province of the People's Republic of China. And uh, because, you know, there's the, the kind of status of Taiwan is a controversial, tricky question, right? Is it a country? Is it part of mainland China? Is mainland China part of Taiwan? Different people have different opinions, and it's sort of a tightrope walking sort of situation, right? And we just said what the United Nations instructed us to say, right? And so this did create a, a stream of complaints from people in Taiwan that believe that Taiwan is not a province of mainland China. And uh, and we would just like tell them, you know, take it up with the United Nations. Except one time an email came in late at night and the person who received it maybe wasn't probably briefed. And they just like forwarded this email to an engineer who was on call in the middle of the night in, uh, in New York. And he's like, yeah, this seems wrong. Right, and then <laughs> you fix it uh, so that so that suddenly, if you search for Taiwan, it would no longer call it uh, a province of China; we just call it Taiwan. And then you know, he sent the ticket back to the support person and said, "I fixed it." Right, <laughs> and uh, and and the person who had sent the original email thought this was really awesome that Google had recognized finally that Taiwan is an independent country. And he luckily had a blog where he could celebrate this, and a lot of people had a lot of blogs in, in Taiwan, and they all thought this was really nice of Google. <laughs> and. Uh, and then the next morning, I got a call from someone I know. I, I didn't even know the guy. He's like, I, you know, I work on policy here at Google, and you've got to fix this. Like, you've got to change this back, like now, like, like yes, like now. And I, I didn't even know this had happened. Right? I just woke it up, <laughs> and so I figured out, yeah, no, this is not what we're supposed to 
just do what the United Nations. And so like a few hours later, we, we changed it back. What happened to the engineer? Oh, no, no, he's fine. I mean, okay. it's just, a, <laughs> just a mistake. Now, Google, Google doesn't, uh, you know, retaliate against. It was a well-meaning mistake, right? So we, we established some more checks and balances afterwards. So it made it a little harder to change. We put more effort into educating everyone about the sensitivity of these things. But, like, what happened was that the, the although we had just, you know, changed it for a few hours and changed it back, that just was not, they were just not going to have that. So... So then everyone in China got really happy. They had been really unhappy early. Then they were, you know, happy. And then the people in Taiwan got really unhappy. And it kind of became a thing in Taiwan that like the, the, the various politicians thought this was something to climb onto and they gave interviews and they called us idiots and can't you tell? Look, we have a parliament, we have elections. Obviously we're a country and who do you think you are? And China has put pressure on you and Google has bowed to the pressure of communist China and <laughs> it got really, really crazy. And, uh, and a bunch of, uh, uh, Taiwanese expats started organizing like a physical protest on the Google campus in California. And, oh my um, God. Uh, yeah, it, it got super fun. And <laughs> in the end we, uh, it was, I think it was actually Larry Sergey. I certainly, you know, got the, the, the Google board was like in a crisis meeting and like we started getting like official letters from the government of Taiwan, except it's not really clear that Taiwan has a government. That's the whole issue to start out with. Um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, but then we did this, we did this thing where, uh, where uh, I think it was Larry's brilliant idea. We just like removed the part of the UI where we echoed back um, the name of a country. We're just like, yeah, we need more room for the map. We don't have room to give names of countries. And then, uh, and then we 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 did certain other other tricks that indicated graphically on the map that Taiwan was sort of of the same status as Hong Kong and and Macau. Which are similarly, you know, controversial things, and and somehow we, uh, you know, yeah. So it turned out that call I got in the morning was actually from uh, uh, a delegation that was negotiating with the Chinese government at the time for Google to set up its first Chinese office, and and when this hit the news, the Chinese government just like walked out and slammed the door, <laughs> and uh, I learned this years later. I had no idea that this this just like the timing was just like spectacularly unfortunate and uh, lots of fun coming back to google as a bigger entity so you mentioned when you started there there were about uh 3000 employees i think and by the time you left that number must have grown to like 30000 so how did the company how did you see like the bigger company change while you were there and and why did you decide to leave and join facebook yeah, those are really good questions. So it was actually like much more dramatic. So like we, there was, I think there was 2,300 people when I joined. And when I left, there was more than 100,000. Oh, wow. And we're only talking like seven, eight years, right? So like the growth was breathtaking. Like I remember distinctly getting to the point where I was one of the 5% oldest employees at Google. Uh, it's just crazy, right? Since, since when I joined, it felt like I was joining this massive, massive company. And... Um, what happens is that there's like a, a different set of skills required, I think, to operate in a much larger organization. You know, if you give like a little four-person startup, it's like different than a 2,000-person company from a 100,000-person company. And um, I think already, you know, the 2,000 size, I, my skills and temperament 
they're just not the best suited for that. I know people who can do all of the above and I'm envious of their skills. And I know people who's like super, super good at the big company kind of thing. Um, but I, I just didn't feel very effective. And, and what happened was I did this thing, uh, Google Wave, I don't know if you heard about it, but after we left the Maps team, my brother and I started working on this thing called Google Wave. Also his idea, similar kind of thing. He was like, oh, his email sucks. And I'm like, what do you mean it sucks? I use it, you know, all day long, every day. It's my primary work tool. I don't know how I could live without it. And he's like, it sucks. And then he, he described how it could be a lot better. And I'm like, you're kind of right. And so we started this project and we kind of debated, should we leave, do another startup? Or should we stay into it as part of Google? And Google gave us a really nice deal and, and, and let us do this on our own until we moved to Australia uh, to do it. Uh, and it was a spectacular failure. I would say equally spectacular failure to the spectacular success of Google Maps. And uh, lots to, you know, that's like a three-hour conversation about all the reasons it failed. Um, but it was very uh, uh, painful. And um, I think this was primarily my fault, actually, uh, that I was just... Um, there's this concept called the second system syndrome, where if you've had some success with a thing and then your next thing is like you're so confident, you're overconfident, so ambitious, you're going to do everything right this time and not make all the mistakes you did before. And you just end up you're biting way more than you can chew. And, um, and, and in particular, I was like of this opinion that there were so many people that told me that maps was just not worth working on or this is not going to work or this is dumb uh, and then we made this big success from which i concluded that all advice should be ignored <laughs> and uh it just turns out not to be the best conclusion and um and and so this thing failed and it cost a bit of tension between um me personally and and google um for a number of reasons and i i regret that it's it's too bad but that's that's what happened and then between the fact that it was a big company i don't really have the skills to be effective in a big company. And then this tension around how Wave ended. And then a bunch of people I'd worked with at Google had you know, left and joined Facebook, which at the time was now the size that Google was when I joined, right? So Google was now 100,000 people and Facebook was like 2,000 people. And a lot of the people at Facebook were the ones I'd enjoyed working with. In particular, um, uh, Brett Taylor, who was one of the smartest engineers I've ever worked with. Uh, he, he was one of the ones who joined uh, maps team right as we entered Google. He'd actually been a big proponent of Google buying us because he wanted to work with us. He wanted to join the team. We had a great time together. He's he's incredibly smart. And he had like left Google, did a startup called FriendFeed, sold it to Facebook, become Facebook CTO. I, I don't know if I mentioned that he's one of the smartest people I work with. So he was like Facebook CTO and he called me when Wave collapsed, which was kind of a public affair. And he called me and said, hey, so I know you may be looking for work and we're having lots of fun over here, so come join me. And and I did, and it was tons of fun. I worked at, at uh, Facebook for like four and a half years, uh, first on search, like I said. And then um, I was actually part of the people that started the Workplace project, which was, to an extent, you know, it was like uh, uh, we tried to build a work tool with Google Wave and, and failed. And, and I saw a lot of the... The reason it failed were like things that Facebook had solved in a different context of social communication. So we thought, hey, here's something to be built. And uh, you may know that like Facebook used Facebook as a work tool long before they made that a product. And so, so we were like looking at how Facebook internally used Facebook as a communications tool internally. And then we turned that into an external project, which is lots of fun. Um, but I, you know, I always, by now it's like, 10 years since I'd done my own startup. And um, 
my wife and I started playing around with some music ideas in our spare time. And it just kind of snowballed. We were not looking for a startup, but it just got more and more interesting. And I was more and more distracted as I was at Facebook in London working with this team I'd assembled on a project I'd proposed, having lots of fun, but music and music and music. And in the end, I just kind of have to leave and give this a go. Um, so I actually would love to talk about your new business, um, Weave Music. So so Weave has one of the most unique uh, founding stories that I've ever heard. <laughs> would you share yes. that with our listeners? Yes, certainly. <laughs> it is my favorite story. Yes, so my, my co-founder is my wife, Elol. And um, it did not start out with us looking for, uh, for a startup. It started out with an argument. I've forgotten the topic, but it was definitely my fault again, as always. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, so Ello got to devise her punishment for whatever terrible thing I'd done. And she had this idea um, that she would bring a metronome into a bedroom. Do you guys know what a metronome is? This TikTok thing that musicians use to, yeah, so you can yep. like set its tempo and then play music and sync with this TikTok sound. And she's like, I'm going to bring a metronome into a bedroom and I'm going to set the tempo to what I want. You have to perform in sync with the metronome. And and if I want something else, I can just change the tempo and you have to adapt. And this is like, I'm remote controlling you, Lars, my lover, with the metronome. That's your punishment. You can see she's quite a harsh girlfriend and uh and and so we 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 played this game and it was tons of fun obviously <laughs> and uh but then when we debriefed as you should always debrief things like this we we were like wow there should be an app for this so that people don't have to go buy a metronome to play this fun game in the bedroom but then we did talk about how we could make it better and there was a couple of things that that the, the tiktok sound uh, does become a little uh uninspiring after a while and and then ella was like can't you make music do this? Can't you let me change the tempo of a song so that you can kind of dance your way into the game, right? So you can you can make love to me and sync with the music, but I can change the tempo of the music so I get to still remote control you. And um, and then uh, she's like, you are a geek, you know, go out in the world and find tech that can do this for me. <laughs> and, so, and so I went out and, and I looked, I knew nothing about music or music software, but but we're all familiar with, even back then, this is like five years ago, right? that, that if you go on YouTube and you watch a video, you can play it back at 25%, 50%, 200%, the original tempo, right? And when you, when you play back the video at a faster tempo, right, the, the audio also speeds up without sounding uh, you know, high-pitched, like the pitch stays the same. And we tried to just do that with music. You can easily find a music video, right, and play faster. And and although we observed that the, the 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 pitch did not change, right, so that had been solved by Google software, and it's actually an off-the-shelf piece of software that any producer in the world has. Um, but it stopped sounding like music. It sounds it sounds really forced if you just like speed up a song or slow it down for that matter. And so then we we consulted with some friends that are into music. And they're like, yeah, of course, this happens because when an artist crafts a song, when the artist and their team, when they craft a song, the, the arrangement of the song, the genre, the vibe, the instrumentation, everything that goes into a song turns out to be very tightly tied to a particular tempo. And if you want a different tempo, you have to change the arrangement of the song to match the new tempo. And 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 if you think about it, this this is not totally unfamiliar, right? Because we all know that like we hear a pop song, a hit on the radio, and then you might hear an acoustic cover where it's the same melody, the same lyrics, but the 
arrangement is different, right? It's a, you know, it's sung with a different kind of vibe and the, the instrumentation might be acoustic and it's slower than the original. And then, but then you might go to a dance club and hear that same song again, but you're hearing, you're listening to a dance remix of that song where the tempo has been increased and a new dancier, more energetic kind of vibe has been added to the song. And that's how you can make the same melody, if you're like, sound good at many different tempos, if you let the artist change the arrangement of the song in response to the listener asking for a different tempo, if that makes sense. And so we're like, this is so exciting. And so we got a team together, some of the former Wave team members down in Australia. And we built this thing where an artist can go and, and quickly specify how their song should sound like at different tempos. And then we put this in an engine where the, the listener could change the tempo and then uh, uh, the the artists would kind of respond with a perfect remix of their song at that tempo. And we did all of this as a little hobby project. It took a year or something because I was busy working Facebook and Ella had a job here in Athens working for an allergy, very different field. Um, and it was all to support this little fun game for lovers, um, <laughs> which we were very motivated by. We did uh, lots of testing, as we like to joke. And um, um, the, the, the then eventually... We, the technology worked, and we got the, an actual professional producer, a good friend of mine, uh, Nick Lane, uh, he's in LA. We gave him the software, which barely hanged together, and he did it with a, like a full song that we borrowed from some label friends of his. So he made a full, actual existing pop song do this trick. And it was just incredible. We were so proud of ourselves. And then we started playing it to friends and family. We're like, hey, we have this game for lovers. You should check this out. And look what we can do with this song. It can magically sound like music, no matter what tempo you ask for. And then something interesting happened. Then everyone was like, this is cool. And we, you know, a fun story with your bedroom games. But I'm a runner. And like, I want this in my running app because I have observed that if you run in sync with the beat of a song, the song really makes you fly. But most songs don't have the right tempo. And I also like doing interval training. And so I change my tempo every 30 seconds and I can't do this to music. And here's a song that can magically change tempo. And then I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then someone else was like, I think my I, I used to be married to a dance teacher, a Cuban dance teacher, and I showed it to her. And she was like, wow, I want this in my studio. I want to teach a new move to my students in slow motion. Like we could slow down the song just as well, right? And then once they can do it in slow motion, I'll just gently crank the song up to its original tempo. And they would just like keep repeating the pattern faster and faster. And then this just kept happening. People wanted to do kids games with this music. The DJs wanted it integrated into DJ gear, uh, a video game. People wanted this in the video. And it just like kept some new use cases for this concept of a song that the, where the listener could change the tempo. And also people would say, hey, can you also change the energy of the song? Can you also like reorganize the timeline? Can you do this and can you do that? And then little by little, like I said, it's it snowballed. And we realized that if you kind of put your mind in the right way, the, the fact that when we get a record today, whether it's on vinyl or CD or download it from iTunes or you can stream it on Spotify, the fact that the record is just a single static audio file is it's kind of um, a restriction. It's like a, a constraint on the artist that has survived from back when records players, record players were, were mechanical. That's all they could do was play back a static audio files. But now we listen to music on computers and we know they can do much more dynamic things. In fact, most video games um, have some sort of music that changes with the action. 
Um, and, and we thought, look, this is the way records should work in, in the you know, 20 teens as we were back then. This is how records should work. And if all records worked like this, you could build much more engaging, exciting experiences, whether for lovers or runners or gamers or whatever. If music, like, like high-end pop music, rock music, popular hits, was in an adaptive format. And that's when we like, quit our day jobs. And here we are. What a story. Um, I, I think it's incredible because when you first look at the, the app, I thought, wow, okay, that's just an amazing tool for running. But I think it's so interesting to hear that, you know, there's a broader mission behind this. And I think it really fits with, I don't know, it follows a trend that is happening like TikTok, for example, which is this app that is really on the rise now. What happens there a lot is they take these songs from two years ago, which were like really famous two years ago, and they change the tempo, they make it faster, and then they kind of become hits again. Right. So people are really playing a lot with the right. speed of the music. So it's it's amazing, I think, that you're doing it in a way that doesn't um, distort the music. Yeah, look, it's super fun. And we, we're, again, it's, it's challenging for a lot of reasons, but... Actually, one of the things that really helped us, I should say, that we were not expecting was that this, this conversation, why is music static in the computer age? Why, why isn't the experience of listening to a song more interactive like it is in a video game? And that turned out to be a conversation that has been had in the music community, in the music industry for a long, long time. Um, and so we rocked up with, hey, here's how we think that should work. There was a lot of eager ears. Uh, in the music industry. And so although we were kind of worried and nervous about approaching, you know, the cool kids that we never got to hang out with when we were in school and all the amazing stuff that they built, right, that there was a lot more interest than we expected in this. What an idea. I'm I'm really excited for the future and I want to see everything that is to come with music. So now reaching the last section of our podcast, which we ask all of our guests. So this section is called Real Talk, where we talk about the questions that we all want to ask, but are often too afraid to. So there's been a lot of uh, discussion lately about, uh, you know, the big tech giants, um, for example, the Social Dilemma documentary, which criticizes really this whole uh, data extraction model. So when you were at Facebook, the firm was potentially a very at a very different stage and you know a very different place than what it is now. But I'm curious, how do you feel about this whole discussion against the tech giants and privacy? Um, yes, um, that is controversial. <laughs> yeah, so I left I left Facebook right before the uh, 2016 election, which I think was like the real turning point for Facebook. Right, that this was when. The, the uh, Cambridge Analytica thing happened. And I, I happened, some old friends of mine from there happened to be working on a news team when, when this happened and the uh, ads team. And, you know, I think, you know, genuinely, um, uh, like Facebook wasn't expecting this, didn't really know how to handle it. And it's really hard when you have like billions and billions of people posting billions and billions of things. And, and, and Facebook had, even back then, like an enormous team working on what they call site integrity, like keeping people safe. But but overwhelmingly, those people were looking at, you know, like private sexual predators, scammers, money scammers, and all that stuff. And the, and the notion of this sort of political abuse, if you like, um, just wasn't really high on the radar at the time. And it's super hard to define, right? You know, there was, a, there was real, real tension between, and you can see this in the public debate, right, between free speech versus something being abusive. Um, and... I should also say it's really hard to be 
even though I don't work at Facebook anymore, I haven't worked there for five years, but it's really hard to be completely objective. When I work there, I know the people I hung out with Mark. I think he's, he's a great guy and I think he has the best of intentions. Um, and it's hard to be fully objective. They also paid me very well kind of thing. And so, you know, like it's, it's, <laughs> it, it's difficult to be objective. And, and so I think one thing though, I do think, uh, I would, I would stand by is, is that there's, there's this, there's this trend in the criticism of Facebook. And you see that in particular in that movie you mentioned, uh, the, the, what's it called? Social Again, dilemma. The social dilemma. Yeah. You see this notion that everything, everything that's happening politically, that's, that's bad. You know, the polarization that's happening in politically in the world. You see it with Brexit, you see it with Trump, you see it with, you know, people in the streets in America and um, where I lived until very recently. And it's quite scary what's what's going on there. Right? But there is this notion that it happened because of micro-targeting. It happened because we've given up our privacy and therefore political abusers can micro-target us. And if we could just take that back, everything will be fine. Uh, and I think that's plainly speaking just not true. I think if you put all of your effort into trying to get our privacy back, you know, stop the cookies, stop the tracking, stop the micro targeting, stop the political ads of a certain kind and so on, that would just not solve the problem. Um, and, and you would have, you would have like put all this effort into something with the best of intention that just won't work. And, and the reason I'm so certain of this is that you can just like look at has there been times in the past where dramatic political polarization has appeared in the world at scale. And of course there has. Yeah, in, in in fact, it's kind of the norm, right? That there, you know, you know, see it in the 30s in the whole world between the, the you know the the, the 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 Nazis, the fascist movement, and the liberal movement, and the communists, and all this stuff. And and there was no micro targeting, and there was no you know Facebook or internet or anything back then. And it still happened, probably even worse than what we're seeing now, at least so far. Although, scarily, it gets closer and closer. And I think. I think you got to really look deeper and see what, what what is it that's driving this polarization. And and for me, there's no question that it's the economic conditions of of, of human beings around the world. And if you look at the people that voted for Brexit, the people that voted for Trumps, you know, they have real economic grievances where their expectations of having a good job with a living wage and being able to buy a house and put the kids through college is like increasingly just not available anymore. And that's the fabric, I think, that these political opportunists are taking advantage of. And Facebook and big tech, they're just a medium. And if that wasn't there, they would use a different mediums, whether it's soapbox on the street corner or a newspaper or, you know, Fox television and so on. And you have to get at those underlying economic issues if you want to solve the problem. And, and if all of the people who generally and well-meaningly wants to make the world saner, they just go and Look at the one medium that that happened to be used most recently. You know, it's not going to solve the problem. I think it's very dangerous. Thanks, Lars, for sharing your thoughts on this. I think it's great to get your perspective because these documentaries on Netflix, in a way, are really presenting a, a one-sided, you know, argument. And now to our last question: If you could invite anyone in the world for a podcast interview, who would it be? My wife. How so? She's the best. She, she has amazing thoughts about the world. If you need a techie, she is now since we're working on this thing together. But she has more interesting thoughts than anyone else I know. 
Amazing. Then I guess we're going to invite her next then. Thank you for the recommendation. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you, hearing about your different projects. And I can't wait for all of our listeners to hear this episode. So thank you again for sharing your time and your thoughts with us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This was super fun. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week and leave a message after the beep.